Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Bill Sher. Today, we are talking to the author of the brand new book, The Billionaire Boondoggle, How Our Politicians Let Corporations and Bigwigs Steal Our Money and Jobs. The managing editor of TalkPoverty.org, Pat Garofalo. Thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So what prompted you to tackle this subject? So it actually started back when I was covering the econ beat in uh, 2008, 9, 10, um, during the financial crisis and post-Great Recession. So the, the world was coming apart at the seams. Um, the financial system had almost fallen apart. And then during this like slow, grinding recovery, I noticed that you had cities all over the country that were doing things like turning their streetlights off and cutting their police force and closing public libraries while at the same time giving all this money to sports teams to build stadiums. And the one that really stuck with me was Detroit, where they were talking about cutting um, pensions of public workers, and yet they were still paying to build an arena for the Detroit Red Wings, whose owner is also the owner of Little Caesars Pizza and the guy that has tons of money. And so that just sort of struck me as odd, and I did some coverage of that, and I did some coverage of Glendale, Arizona, which was a very similar situation with the uh, Phoenix Coyotes. Um, And then... Over the years, I noticed that this wasn't just a sports thing. This was a movie thing. This was a casino thing. This was a hotel thing. You had all of these states and cities spending all this money on stuff that was meant to entertain people and claiming that it was a you know economic development booster and a job creator when all of the academic evidence said that that was not at all true. Uh, so, uh, so your basic thesis here is that uh, cities and states routinely give tax breaks to uh, entertainment companies broadly defined, including sports teams and and, and things of that nature, uh, on the premise it's going to be good for jobs, good for economic development, uh, and at the end of the day, studies show that doesn't actually pan out. That's correct? Yeah, exactly. So why is it then, if if there's been all these studies, why do mayors and governors keep doing it? The really short answer is that it's good for votes. Um, the political science shows that engaging in this sort of activity convinces voters that you are working to create jobs for them and working to build the economy. Um, and so even when um, mayors and governors don't end up actually getting the thing they're chasing after, their vote share goes up. So there's a big political incentive to engage in this sort of policymaking Um Because if you do get a company to come to your place, you get to go to the ribbon cutting. There's a story on the front page of the local newspaper. Um, When it comes to a sports team, if you manage to keep a sports team from moving and, you know, ripping the heart out of a community, um, you get tons of of good press. And and that stuff is worth something to a politician that that helps during a reelection campaign. So the political incentive and the economic evidence don't line up. Um, Now, this book is fairly fortuitously timed, you talk about 
uh, Amazon's search for a new headquarters in here. Uh, we're talking uh, in March of 2019, only a few weeks after uh, the deal for them to set up shop in New York City got scuttled. Uh, there was there was grassroots blowback, and Amazon decided it wasn't worth the the fuss and pulled out. Uh, although I believe, a, as we speak, Governor Andrew Cuomo is still trying to resuscitate it. He just he just won't let the, let the good thing be good. He's trying to make the good thing bad again. <laughs> um, what what do you think was bad about that deal, uh, and what do you think it means that um, grassroots pushback was able to disrupt it? So taking the second part first, it was really encouraging. You very rarely see these sorts of deals um, get scuttled in real time. There's only a handful of uh, examples of that. Um, usually it's when people find out sort of after the fact, like the Foxconn deal in Wisconsin, where the uh, company got all these tax breaks promising 13,000 jobs and then came back a year later and was like, oh, actually, we're not going to do that. Never mind. Um, so I found the the political response really, really encouraging. Um, there's only a cu- couple of other examples in the last few years where something like that happened. Um, Boston saying no to the Olympics is one. Um, Anaheim's city council flipping in response to um, the city giving a ton of money to Disney is another. Um, so I thought that was great. My, my broader take on the Amazon deal is that this was a classic example of paying a company to do what it wanted to do anyway. And that's one of the biggest problems with these deals is you are often subsidizing a company when the company would have made the same decision in the absence of the money, right? Amazon did this huge dog and pony show, collected all this data on all these cities, made a huge thing of it, made it seem like it was, you know, an honest to goodness look across the entire country. Where does it end up? The nation's capital and the world capital of finance. And so I think there's a good case to be made that Amazon was going to go to those two places anyway. Um, and even if it wasn't, it was going to expand operations in those two places anyway for reasons that had nothing to do with taxes. And so all that money is just a windfall. It's just you know a cherry on top of what was going to be a good business decision for the company regardless. Uh, so from the vantage point of Governor Andrew Cuomo, and Mayor Bill de Blasio, uh, who both for for the deal. Um, so y- your argument is they're going to do this anyway. Don't pay them to do it. Uh, is there reasonable incentive for political leaders to say these jobs are going to go somewhere, uh, and I'd rather have them go here than somewhere else? And if someone else is willing to pay them a subsidy to, to, to do it, well, then I have to get in on that game. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the problem, right, is that there's a giant prisoner's dilemma going on and that the, the politician who moves first reaps all the benefits and you, know, you can play cities and states off against each other. Um, but I think Amazon is also instructive in that, in this case, it left a lot of money on the table. If it really was out for only subsidies, if that were the overriding concern, they would have gone to Newark, which offered some seven or eight billion. They would have gone to Maryland, which offered eight and a half billion, if memory serves. Um, so it's clear that that wasn't the overriding uh, concern for Amazon. That wasn't the only thing they were looking for. And so if you want to entice companies in a perfect world, no city or state would engage in these sorts of things and they would be competing on the stuff that actually boosts an economy long term. They'd be arguing, hey, our schools are the best in the country. Hey, our infrastructure is the best in the country. Hey, our quality of living is great. And your workers are going to be happy and want to be here. Um, that would be the, that. that's how you want to do these things in a perfect world. Um, 
but because somebody always does get some benefit if they jump first on the subsidies, you end up getting in these races to the bottom. Now, uh, in Amazon's case, uh, in New York City's case, you had a uh, activist community in New York City that was sort of raring to go uh, and with a high profile face and uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, leading the charge. Um, you write in the book uh, about what happened in Boston, and you just mentioned them rejecting the Olympics. Uh, and the Olympics has always been seen as kind of a real feather in a city's cap. You, you, you invest a ton of money in infrastructure to uh, welcome uh, the Olympics to, to your city. Um, you, infrastructure that will last beyond the event. It is a you know, multi-week advertisement for your city, for businesses to come to the city, for tourists to come to the city. Uh, why was it that, uh, what were the factors that made it possible for grassroots activists in Boston to resist those sorts of appeals? I think there's a few things. Um, and the biggest one is that there has been, I think, growing awareness of the downsides of hosting these big sporting events, not just the Olympics, but also the World Cup and things like the Super Bowl. Um, and honestly, not because of the US, because other countries, look at Brazil, look at South Africa, look at Greece, have had really bad experiences um, when hosting these things. You have They have stadiums that are were built for the games and are now sitting around unused and rotting. They lost all this money. They have these huge other problems that weren't addressed. Um, I think some of that bled over. Um, and as the games have gotten bigger and bigger and the International Olympic Committee has looked greedier and greedier, the awareness just really went up. And that's kind of one of my main theses in the book is that when the awareness of how bad these deals are hits a certain point, you get a situation like Boston, you get a situation like uh, Amazon in New York, you get a situation like Anaheim and Disney, um, where the population will stand up and say, no thanks, this is not worth our time. Um, and actually, you hit on one of the things that makes me craziest about the um, Olympics is that proponents of hosting make this argument that, oh, the Olympics are going to come, so we have to spend all this money to improve our infrastructure, but that'll be good for you in the long run as if it is impossible to invest in infrastructure in the absence of the Olympics. Um, that always happens when DC gets floated, where I live as a, a potential host. They say, oh, we'll put all this money into the Metro if we host the Olympics. It's like, just put the money into the Metro without the Olympics. Like, There's a good reason for our Metro system to be world-class, and it's not. Um, and you don't need to host a giant sporting event in order to make it so. Well, that seems to me uh, one of the issues with the uh, tax subsidy question. You're trying to lure a business to your uh, state or city to for, for job creation purposes. It's, it seems like it's easier for a politician to offer a tax cut than to propose a tax increase to raise revenue to invest in that kind of infrastructure. Um, so I, mean, I know here in Massachusetts, where, where I'm, I'm based, uh, Governor Deval Patrick had a hard time raising revenue through taxes, but he was able to pass casino uh, legalization, which on the premise that this is going to generate uh, revenue. Um, so what what do you say to a politician saying, look, I would I would love to do it your way, but I can't get this tax increase passed in my legislature, so what am I going to do? Yeah, there's certainly something to that, um, and that all of these things are kind of a bank shot way to raise revenue. If we spend this money on the front end, then we'll get all this money on the back end. Um, I think the better way to do it is to is to argue for investments in the community, right? You say, hey, instead of throwing all this money at a corporate titan, 
we're going to spend money on our schools and that's going to raise more money in the long run because a better educated workforce is something we want. Or we're going to spend this money on mass transit and making our place, uh, making it easier to get around and that's going to boost the economy in the long run. Or we're going to do universal pre-K and that's going to make, or universal childcare and that's going to make our place, our city, a place people want to live and that will raise revenue because more people will move here. There are lots of ways to get at this that don't involve just tossing money at a company. Now, you start the book um, really going at the notion that uh, attracting filmmakers and TV shows to film in your state, and many states have tax incentives to attract uh, the entertainment industry to do that kind of, um, that kind of filming, uh, that has not actually produced economic benefits for those areas. I, I would imagine that would be a surprise to people. I think most people feel like, hey, I get a big TV show to film in my state, uh, that's a giant average. Not only are the individual jobs for actors and tech crews and, and, and caterers and things like that, but it's also a giant advertisement. You get to see, you get to brag about, hey, look, this House of Cards was filmed here and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, why doesn't that amount to an economic boon for those areas? Yes, this actually gets at a few of the big problems with these deals. Um, the first is that film production by its very nature is going to create short-term jobs just because, you know, movie productions are only up for the amount of time it takes to make the movie and then they go away and TV shows come and go. Um, so you're creating a lot of short-term positions and not even necessarily for people who didn't have a job before. You're maybe like giving a police officer some extra hours as a security guard or you're hiring hairdressers for a few months and then they go back to the salon they work at. Um, so you end up creating tons of kind of short-term rent-a-jobs um, for a few months at a time instead of building something uh, long-term and sustainable. Second problem is you end up paying a lot of people to simply fly in and do work. Um, you know, a lot of the producers and the actors aren't going to come from the local community. So you're going to pay to fly in some A-list celebrity to film for a few, film a movie for a few months, and then they're going to leave and they're going to take all that money, the money they would have spent back with them to wherever they live. Um, and then the third problem, and this is the big one, is that, and this is not just uh, a problem with movies, but a problem with these deals writ large, is that you set up a huge opportunity for hostage taking. Um, and that's exactly what House of Cards and Veep both did to Baltimore. They said, hey, you have these productions here, you have these jobs here, shame if anything were to happen to them. If you don't give us more money every year in perpetuity, we're going to leave. Um, House of Cards ended up getting more money and staying. Veep ended up taking a better deal from California, taking $5 million and picking up shop and moving across the country. Um, and so all the development that was associated with Veep is now in California. Um, and that happens all the time in these deals. States are played off against each other. They are told that if they don't increase the amount of money, if they don't provide a better deal for whatever the thing in question is, then that thing is going to leave for another state. And that's how you get into these race to the bottoms. You get these giant deals. Boeing you know, talked Washington State into paying it $8.7 million by threatening to move to, to move production to South Carolina. Um, and that stuff happens all the time. We're talking with Pat Groffalo, author of The Billionaire Boondoggle, How Our Politicians Let Corporations and Bigwigs Steal Our Money and Jobs, published by Thomas Dunn Books. Um, uh, you mentioned the book, uh, former governor of Texas, Rick Perry, who is now secretary of energy. And when he was running for president, he, he made a real big show 
that he attracted all these jobs uh, to Texas. Uh, so he was a conservative Republican governor. Uh, but uh, it wasn't through uh, job creation per se. He's poaching jobs from other states. Uh, is, is, is that a real conservative approach to governing? I mean, on this thing, I have no idea what conservative versus versus liberal even means because everybody engages in it in a terrible way. Um, but I think there is something to the argument, right, that we are all at the end of the day one country and we should be doing things that increase the pie for everyone, not just taking jobs from one place and plopping them in another. Um, and that, of course, happens with these deals all the time. The people who had jobs in, say, California and then the company moved to Texas, either those people have to move. So you're not actually giving jobs to unemployed Texans. You're just forcing Californians to uproot themselves and, and move to Texas. Um, or those people are now unemployed and need to need to go find new jobs um, because their job up and left to Texas. Um, and this actually gets super absurd in um, a few instances. One that I really like in, in the sense that it's a nice story and terrible economic policy um, is what's called the border war in Kansas City. Uh, Kansas City straddles two states, and so companies would literally play the two states off against each other. Um, excuse me, Missouri and Kansas, and um, literally get tax breaks to move across the state line a couple of miles, and then to move back, and then to move back across the state line again. So you had these workers who were just changing their commute um, to, you know, sometimes work on one side of the state line, sometimes work on the other, um, and that's sort of a goofy emblematic example of these sorts of deals. You're not creating anything new. You're just shifting stuff from one place to another and you're shifting who gets the credit for that stuff. Um, now you mentioned that you, you see both parties doing this. So th this is not an issue that necessarily uh, uh, is the purview of one party or, or another or one ideology over another. You, you think there are sort of, there are bipartisan, bipartisan friends or bipartisan enemies here. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's one of those things where the uh, the political actors are all on one side, and the um, kind of activist and economic academic actors are all on the other. Because conservative and liberal economists are pretty united in their sense that this stuff is terrible, and yet both parties do it all the time. Um, so, uh, is there something resembling a real? Uh, bipartisan, you know, cross ideological movement that people can point to if they want to get involved in this, that there's an organization that talks about it? Uh, I'm sorry, you kind of dropped there and I missed part of the question. Uh, is, is, there a, is there a bipartisan organization or a trans cross ideological organization that's actually formed to be the movement that stops these kinds of deals? There is not, no, unfortunately, other than in the instances where it has things have been stopped, such as Boston or Anaheim. Um, I imagine if you talked to those people, you would get a pretty like wide ideological spectrum. Um, but no, there isn't one like good gung-ho bipartisan, we're going to stop this stuff sort of organization or movement. And that sort of makes sense, right? The, the problem with fighting these deals is that they're really good for one company. And so that company is going to go all out to get them. Whereas the interests opposed are sort of diffuse and no one deal ruins a city most of the time and no one deal ruins a state budget most of the time. Um, so it's sort of hard to get a good coalition together to say, no, you really need to care about this one deal and amid all the other things that you care about. Um, whereas for a 
you know, company that's coming in and saying, hey, we could possibly get $2 billion out of this. They're going to work really hard to do that. On the, so most of the book talks about how, you know, states and cities can play one off of each other and therefore it's hard to uh, stop this kind of uh, hostage taking, as, as you say. Uh, you, t- you, t- you do tackle one national issue and that is the, the corporate tax rate system itself. Uh, you often hear uh, conservatives argue that if the corporate tax rate was lower, we would attract more businesses um, from other countries. Uh, and you hear Democrats say this is already a tax system that's festooned with loopholes. They're, they're, they're not they're not paying it. They're not paying their fair share as it is. Um, so who's right in that debate? Uh, uh, much more the latter. Um, I don't think there's a lot to the case that uh, the U.S. is uncompetitive on the corporate tax front, even before the the Trump tax bill, which cut the rate much, much lower and far too low, in my opinion. But this also gets back to something, an argument I was making earlier. There are good reasons to do business in the U.S. Um, it's a huge economy. There's the rule of law. We have decent infrastructure. We have a lot of potential customers. Um, so there are good reasons to be here. Um, that have nothing to do with taxes and that have nothing to do with the tax rate anyone's paying in a particular place. And those are the sort of things you want to be competing on, not competing on, hey, who can get the tax rate to zero the fastest. And in some ways, you're never going to be able to compete with a country that wants to cut its tax rate to you know 2% or zero or be a giant tax haven. Um, so why even bother? Compete on the stuff that actually matters. Yeah. I mean, are there businesses that have the foresight to say, I don't want to be in the lowest tax country because we do need to have some infrastructure for our businesses to function. If, if the state uh, is not investing in itself, how are we going to function here? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you saw even before the, the tax cut bill, you saw manufacturing starting to come back to the U.S. under Obama. And that's because companies started to realize like, oh, actually being in these you know countries where there's no regulations and, and the, the taxes are really low and we don't have to pay people a whole lot oftentimes isn't the best business decision. It's better to be closer to our customers and it's better to have supply chains that are shorter. Um, so there was a good reason to come back to the United States that had nothing to do with taxes. So, so since Obama, we've had President Donald Trump. We've had him uh, say he's going to keep businesses here through uh, both saber-rattling. Uh, he has promoted certain uh, subsidy deals like Foxconn in Wisconsin. Um, saying that we were, they were going to, we're going to attract business from other countries to come here through uh, these types of uh, tax giveaways, uh, and they have passed a tax reform bill that did uh, revamp the corporate tax system in a way designed to uh, repatriate money that was been stashed overseas and give it a low tax rate to, to create the incentive to bring it into the U.S. So that's been in place for over a year. And and, and since presidency has been around for for two years, what's the evidence that that kind of thinking is working? I mean, there isn't any evidence that it's working, right? Um, I think the evidence that's come out so far, and it's still early, and you know, business decisions take a long time to manifest, so you can't say anything for sure at this point. Um, but I would argue that the early evidence is that this was a huge giveaway to CEOs and shareholders, and that's where all the money is gone. Um, you haven't seen the sort of investment that was promised. You haven't seen anything like the sort of job creation that was promised on a large scale. Um, and then these one-off deals, I mean, Foxconn is, again, just a perfect example of why you shouldn't do this sort of thing. It promised Wisconsin a giant manufacturing plant and all these jobs, and in return for all this money, it was going to 
revamp the, the state's manufacturing base. And then a year later, it said, eh, actually, never mind. Um, and that gets to the point of making that taxes just cannot be the overriding decision for most of these businesses. Um, even back in 2001, I believe it was, um, when Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill was at his confirmation hearing um, during the uh, George Bush administration, he gave a really good speech about this stuff saying like, look, if you're going to give me money as a corporate CEO, and he'd been the CEO of Alcoa before being a treasury secretary, I'm going to take it. Like, that's great. Of course, I'll stuff it in the bank, but I don't make decisions because of that sort of thing. Um, And that's exactly the point I'm trying to get at. We act in many, many ways, not just on the corporate level, as if taxes are this overriding be all end all of all our economic decisions when they're often a very small part, if they're a factor at all. Um, we, we just treat taxes as if everybody's always sitting around going, oh, if I take this step across the street, what's this going to do to my tax rate? Um, and no one really thinks like that. Um, what do you make of the argument that most uh, Trump supporters would say, which is we passed this tax cut bill and the GDP growth has been great since then, job creation has been solid. So obviously this works. Correlation isn't causation. Um, those, those trends were in place long before Trump did any of those things. And in a lot of ways, this recovery has just sort of trundled along for the last, you know, eight to 10 years. Um, And it is what it is. And I think for the argument that those folks were making to bear fruit, we would have to see some sort of marked increase in those things. Um, And we haven't, you can just, you can just watch the the line kind of just keep on steadily going up. um, And you can't find where on the graph that corporate tax cut happened. Now, you uh, generally argue, uh, getting back to the state-city question, that ideally, to avoid the the playing one off the other uh, dynamic, uh, people should lock arms. You know, if states and cities just get together and agree we're not going to let ourselves be manipulated by these corporations, then they'll have no choice. So they'll just have to go wherever it makes sense for them to go, the tax question would become a non, non-factor. non um, Putting aside how, how hard it would be to organize that, because you do, so one person, one state, one city breaks off, you, you blow that system. Uh, you also t- take the time to uh, focus on the individual workers who say, you know, I, I am benefiting from the system as it is. And if, you know, if I'm, I'm working on this TV show uh, and, or I, I'm in the, I mean, the, the film industry, and even if the jobs are temporary, I, I might string together one temporary job after another and make a living out of it. So if you up in this system, that's going to impact me at the, at the micro level. So to what extent should those individual stories matter uh, in policymaking? I mean, that's the worst part of this, right, is that if you cut all of these subsidies out tomorrow – Yes, people would be affected. Yes, people would lose their jobs. That would absolutely happen. And to pretend otherwise would be pretty silly. Um, and it would absolutely be sad for those people. And I can understand why those folks wouldn't want to see one want some like, you know, pointy headed econ nerd telling them that they need to lose their job for the you know greater good so that states don't give away tax subsidies. Like you know, who wants to hear that argument? Nobody. Um but you can't make policy that way. You can't make policy via anecdote. You need to do what's best for the economy writ large and propping up industries in places that it doesn't make sense to have them for the sake of a handful of jobs is just bad policy making. And for the people affected, I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you have a, uh, 
do you have a pat solution to this problem? Um, so the, the really easy, elegant answer is that Congress could come in tomorrow and stop this whole thing. You could pass a national law saying something to the effect of, for you know, federal tax purposes, all state and local corporate tax subsidies will be taxed at one hundred and ten percent. You know, and that would be the end of it. Um, or you could you know threaten to withhold highway funding or other infrastructure money or whatever if, if a state engages in these sort of things. So there is a way in theory for Congress to just tomorrow come in and say, like, we're done, we're over this, knock it off. Um, and then that would be that. And that actually is the preferable solution, all else being equal, because then people like me only need to try and protect the one federal law as opposed to like protecting a bunch of state laws against doing this. Um, Recently, some people have been talking up state compacts where like three or four or five states get together and promise not to do this sort of thing if all the other ones do. I'm more skeptical of that solution just because it's been tried before um, in the tri-state area, actually. They tried doing this and then New Jersey broke the pact and the whole thing started all over again. Um, so I think that because of the sort of prisoner's dilemma, those solutions are less promising just because all it takes is one state flipping to a different governor or a different party. And all of a sudden we're right back where we started. Whereas if we did it at the federal level, then at least you could just try and protect the one thing as opposed to having to pick off 50 different states. Um, But I'm not super optimistic that that's going to happen. Congress has never been interested in doing that. So honestly, the really unsatisfying, unsexy answer is that I just want people to be more aware of these things and maybe we stop them one by one, like occurred with Amazon. The book is The Billionaire Boondoggle, How Our Politicians Let Corporations and Bigwigs Steal Our Money and Jobs. Pat Garofalo, thanks so much for being on New Books in Politics. Hey, thanks. Happy to be here.